So take a few moments to settle down your mind, put aside other thoughts, other topics of thinking, and decide to just focus on what we're doing here in this class, and then generate a positive altruistic motivation for listening. So one of the main topics in um, learning Buddhism, and that includes learning the different tenet schools, is the topic of selflessness or emptiness. And the two lower schools uh, only talk about selflessness with regard to persons, and they don't talk about it with regard to other kinds of phenomena like tables and cars and, and so on. And one type of selflessness of persons is the emptiness of a permanent, unitary, independent self or I. And this is a kind of self that was taught and is still taught by some non-Buddhist uh, schools of philosophy and religion, but the Buddha realized there is no such a thing as that kind of self. But we shouldn't just take the Buddha's word for it. We should investigate for ourselves. And it's possible that if we were brought up in uh, Christianity or Judaism, then we may have been taught uh, that we have a soul, that you know, exists after we die. And so it may have some of the same kind of characteristics as this permanent, unitary, independent self that the uh, non-Buddhist Indian schools believed in. So it's always good to check to see if we may have within our minds that kind of notion. So start by just getting in touch with your sense of self or sense of I. And it's most clear or vivid when there's some strong emotion, either a negative emotion like being angry or frightened or a positive emotion like being really happy, excited, joyful. So think of the last time you did feel some strong emotion. Try to remember that experience as clearly as possible.
see if you can get get a glimpse of the sense of I that lies behind or beneath that emotion. The I who is happy and excited or the I who is unhappy or angry. And then ask yourself, does this sense of I seem to be something permanent in the sense of not changing, always the same, something that's always been there and always will be there? And ask yourself if the sense of I seems to be something unitary, monolithic, like it's one whole partless thing. It can't be divided into parts. If that was the case, if, you're, if, if our I was unitary, partless, then we wouldn't be able to talk about different parts of ourself. You know, we do sometimes say, oh, this part of me feels like this, that part of me feels like that, and so on. So just check if that makes sense, that your I, your sense of I or self is something partless. And the third feature of this type of I is independent, meaning independent of causes and conditions. So if that was the case, then your I could exist without depending on anyone or anything else. You wouldn't need to depend on your parents or on food, water, air, and so does that make sense? Is, is it possible that your I can exist independent of all other factors, causes and conditions?
it's also helpful to think that if there was a permanent, unitary, independent I, it would not be able to function. It wouldn't be able to do anything. Even simple things like walking or talking, eating, working, and so on. Because something that's permanent never changes. It's like frozen, fixed, always exactly the same, never changing. And when we do these different activities, walking, talking, eating, working, then changes are taking place. We have to move our body and our mouth and our mind. So those kind of activities wouldn't be possible if our I was permanent, unitary, and independent. And such an I also wouldn't be able to create karma, good karma, bad karma, and then experience the results of karma. And we wouldn't be able to practice the Dharma and change ourselves, transform ourselves, and eventually become enlightened, because that requires changes. And a permanent I would never change. It'll always be exactly the same. So see if you can come to a conclusion after thinking about these points about your, your sense of self or I, how it exists. Can it be permanent and unitary and independent? Or does that seem unrealistic, even impossible? So it could be useful when you're on your own to check the sense of self or I that you have, um, especially when there's strong emotions, and just see what that I looks like, what kind of qualities or characteristics it has, and, and then examine it. Uh, if, if, if it's realistic or not, do you have a realistic view of yourself or not? So this is just the, the most gross kind of uh, self <laughs> view, wrong view of self. Uh, and then there's subtler ones, but it's good to start with the more gross ones mm -hmm. and work with those rather, rather than jumping right to the subtlest one. <laughs> um, so gradually getting familiar with checking our sense of self or I and seeing if it's realistic or not.
Okay, so we're still on the first of the four schools, the Vaibhashika, or Great Exposition School. And we got up to the, we're now on the last point of their, uh, looking at that school, point number seven, which is the presentation of grounds and paths. So these two terms, grounds and paths, um, both refer to minds consciousnesses and not just any old mind but realizations so a ground is actually a realization a path is a realization and those two terms are also synonymous they're interchangeable so if it's a ground it's a path if it's a path it's a ground so with this topic we're looking at how the school explains the path leading to nirvana, in the, in the case here, they're mainly talking about attaining nirvana or liberation. So what is the procedure? What is the way to get ourselves from where we are now in samsara to that goal of nirvana? So this explanation has two parts. The first is objects of abandonment. So, uh, in order to get to our goal of nirvana, there are things that need to be cleared away, things that are obstructing our attainment of those goals that need to be eliminated. And um, I changed, oh, this is the wrong one. <laughs> huh. I meant to change this. Yeah, so the, the translation of the text, like, I, like I, I said, I translated it 40 years ago, and now looking at it, I, I, I want to change some of the translations. So the words in red are, are changed, but I, I thought I changed this just before. So the first one is called afflictive, but I decided it's better to call it afflicted mm -hmm. because it's nyunmung chen in Tibetan, which means having afflictions. So I thought afflicted is a better translation, afflicted obscurations. Um, okay, so afflictive obscuration, afflict, I mean, normally they're called afflictive, but I think it's a slightly different term. I think it's nyonmong pe dripa is afflictive, but this is nyonmong chen dripa, nyonmong chen dripa. Anyway, I, I just, I'm still working on this, but I think afflicted is better. Um, so these are obscurations that mainly prevent the attainment of liberation, nirvana. Okay, so these are the things we have to overcome if we want to attain nirvana. And so what they include is the conception, grasping, self-supporting, substantially existent self, so this is, um, you know, kind of ignorance that believes in this. It's a more it's a more subtle kind of self than the one we just did a meditation on, the permanent, unitary, independent one. This is a more subtle uh, idea about the self. We'll do a meditation on that next week. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is a kind of self that that seems to be like the boss the ruler, the controller of our body and mind and our life and everything. 
So there seems to be a sense of self inside of us that's the director, the boss, the CEO. But there's really no such thing. <laughs> it's like a hallucination. When we look for it, we can't find it. Still, it seems to be there. So we have this conception. We had it from beginningless time that there is that kind of a self. So the conception that grasps at that kind of a self is the main afflictive afflicted obscuration. And then in addition to that, the three poisons, so greed, hatred, ignorance, and uh, their seeds. So the seeds of the three poisons that arise from that conception. So that conception, believing in a self-sufficient, substantial existent I, is there within our mind right from the time we're born. And based on that, we have the other afflictions like attachment and aversion. It only mentions three poisons, but it also includes all the other afflictions, jealousy, arrogance, laziness, and so on and so forth. So all the afflictions, they are all based on that conception and then the seeds so the seeds uh, whenever we have any moment of any of those afflictions in our mind it leaves a seed that will give rise to further experiences of that same emotion later so those are the things that keep us in samsara and the things we have to overcome eliminate to get out of samsara Could this be the same as the mere eye, or is that... Now, this school doesn't talk so about the mere okay. eye. Okay. No. Um, that's a, that's Prasangika. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, according to this school, there is an eye, there is a self, a person, uh, that's imputed. They would. Say, I mean, all the Buddhist schools apparently agree that a person, you, me... Venable Semke, anybody, is just what's imputed on the aggregates. It's just imputedly existing, imputed on the aggregates. But they don't use that expression of mere I. That's exclusively the Prasangikas who talk about that. Venable, the, this afflictive obscuration is different from the Navajuna version of the karma afflictions and the seeds and its active seeds. Is, is yeah, each so? each school each school would have uh, their own version, their own explanation of what are the obscurations, and some, you know, there would be some commonality among their explanations, but like Nagarjuna is Madhyamaka Prasangika, and so uh, in that school, the um, the the afflictive obscur the afflictive obscuration, the main afflictive obscuration is grasping at an inherently existing self, okay? So we need to be very clear on what's the definition of each of these terms. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they use the same term, they would say the same term, afflicted obscuration or afflictive obscuration, but then what that includes, what's included in that would be different for, for the different schools. Although, I would say not completely different because I think all the other schools, Vibhashika and all the others, would would agree that the conception grasping a self-supporting substantially existent self 
is the main obstacle to liberation. It's only prasangika who say that, no, that's not enough. <laughs> you have to get rid of the conception of the inherently existing self. Or no, so, yeah, the deeper, the more subtle one. Yeah. So it's, it's more or less all the other schools and then prasangika. They have different uh, explanations. Then the second kind of um, uh, object of abandonment are called non-afflicted, again, I would like to say afflicted, non-afflicted obscurations. And these are the things that prevent all knowingness, the state a Buddha attains. They don't, they don't say a Buddha is omniscient, but they do say a Buddha is all-knowing. And so, um, a Buddha has eliminated this second kind of uh, obscuration, um, which are called non-afflicted obscurations. But those who just attain nirvana, uh, the arhats who attain nirvana, they haven't eliminated number two. They've eliminated number one, but not number two. So what's included in number two uh, again, I changed the word. I think it said tendencies. So it's latencies, pakchak in Tibetan. Latencies of that conception. So the conception grasping a self-supporting substantially existent self. So even after that's been eliminated from the mind, that's no longer there in the mind, but there's still these latencies or imprints, you know, like the smell of the garlic. That example they give is this lingering smell of that conception still in the mind. And also uh, another term, ne negative tendencies. I think I put in the text mental unclarity, but when I looked up the term in Tibetan, it um, means negative tendencies. And so you may have heard Venerable Children talk about this. They say that arhats, you know, an arhat is somebody who's attained nirvana. So they've eliminated all their afflictions. They no longer have any of the afflictive states of mind. But they may still have these tendencies uh, with regard to their body and speech. Like they, they say, jumping like a monkey mm -hmm. or speaking harsh words. So they don't have any affliction in their mind. But maybe because of having done those things before, there's still some tendency to do those things. So that's the meaning of negative tendencies. Um, and then there's also included in these non-afflicted obscurations are what are called four types of unknowingness. This isn't in our text, but it's in the Abhidharma Kosha. And it's, it's interesting, so I'll, I'll mention it. There are four, four things that a Buddha can do, but the Arhats can't do. <laughs> And they all have to do with the mind. Um, so being able to perceive things that are very far away, at a vast distance. Um, so Modgaliana, one of the Buddha's disciples who was known for his psychic powers, he was trying to find his mother, where his mother had taken birth. And he, he wasn't able to find her. But the Buddha checked, and the Buddha found her. And she was, she'd been born in a hell realm underneath the northern continent, you know, in the 
cosmology. You have Mount Meru in the middle and then the four continents. We're in the southern continent. So the northern continent is on the other side of Mount Meru. It's very far away. So his mother had been born in a hell realm underneath that. He couldn't find her, but the Buddha could. That's one, one thing that Arhat still has um, obscurations about. And the second one is um, the ability to see things over a vast period of time. And the illustration of this was, you probably heard this story too, at the time of the Buddha, there was this elderly man who came and wanted to be a monk. Like he desperately wanted to be a monk. He was begging to be a monk. And um, Shariputra, who again had great psychic abilities, he tried to check if this man had created any karma to be born as a monk. You know, you have to have some <laughs> karmic um, potential to be a monk. And he couldn't find anything. He couldn't find anything that the man had done in any of his past lives that would um, make him qualified to be a monk. So this man was very upset, and Buddha heard about it, and then he checked, and he saw in a past life, this man had been a fly, you know, remember that story? <laughs> the fly that was sitting on a piece of cow poo or something and floating around a stupa with the rainwater. And so he, the fly went around the stupa and in that way, you know, got this, this imprints on his mind from the holy object. And therefore he did have the um, imprint to be, be ordained so he could be ordained. So again, so again Shariputra couldn't see that, but the Buddha could because it was such a long time in the past. And then the third one is the ability to see very subtle things. Um, for example, very subtle qualities of the Buddha. So an example of this is the Buddha's accumulation of ethics. It is so great and so profound that it can only be perceived by another Buddha, but cannot be perceived by an Arhat. So an Arhat would not be able to see the incredible qualities of the Buddha's um, practice of ethics and other, other qualities. And then the fourth one is the ability to perceive very subtle details of things. So for example, um, Example is the particularities of constituents, migrations, places of birth, rebirths, probably karma as well. And all the subtle details of karma, you say only a Buddha is able to see that, but an arhat cannot. So an example is a Buddha can perceive the entire range of causes that give rise to the different colors on the peacock's tail. <laughs> but an arhat can't do that. So there are certain things that arhats are obscured uh, to because they still have this second type of object of abandonment, these non-afflicted obscurations. So even though they have no more afflictions in their mind, there's still some obscurations that a Buddha has eliminated, but an arhat has not. Okay, so then uh, the second part of this is the actual presentation of grounds and paths. And before we go into that, I thought some of you might not have heard an explanation of the five paths, so I'll just go through that. So the next slide shows a, 
the five paths. So this is mainly in the Mahayana. In the Mahayana tradition, they talk about five paths. But in the Pali tradition, they have different terminology. They talk about stream enterers, once returners, non-returners. That's another, another way of talking about the path. Um, so the five paths, again, a path is a consciousness, a realization. And so this sort of charts your progress from uh, the beginning of the path up to the end, which is either nirvana or enlightenment. So the first path is called the path of accumulation, because this is where you're mainly accumulating the merit, the causes for your uh, goal. And it has three levels, small, middle, and great. And the entry point, the, the starting point of the path of accumulation, uh, it's different whether you're following a Hinayana path or the Mahayana path. So for Hinayana, uh, it's uncontrived renunciation. So that means we need to meditate on the faults of samsara again and again and again, and recognize that samsara is just nothing but dukkha and, and totally unsatisfying, and we have this strong determination to get out of it. So in the beginning, we develop that in a contrived way. We have to make effort to generate that state of mind. Um, but it's not something that just arises naturally, spontaneous, like the other day, Venerable Chinese talk about sitting down and meditating on renunciation and getting a strong feeling of it. And then you get up and attachment comes up. So, um, yeah, so that's where I'm still at. <laughs> still, <laughs> like in the, your morning meditation, you meditate on samsara and you get this strong feeling of renunciation and then you go to breakfast and you see that Venerable Jigme has made pancakes <laughs> and suddenly renunciation is out the window. <laughs> Uncontrived attachment has arisen. <laughs> That's me. I don't know about you. But <laughs> so uncontrived renunciation is when it doesn't go away. It it just it's there kind of naturally and spontaneously and we have no attachment to samsara so that's a pretty strong level of, of uh, state of mind but for the mahayana someone like the bodhisattva's path um, the path of accumulation starts with uncontrived bodhicitta and they don't mention uncontrived renunciation but i'm sure the bodhisattva also has to develop that as the basis for uncontrived bodhicitta, because you have to see the faults of samsara and see how disgusting it is and want to get out of it so that then you can wish the same for all other sentient beings and take on the responsibility. I am going to help all sentient beings get out of samsara. So that means someone following the bodhisattva path has to develop both uncontrived renunciation and uncontrived bodhicitta. I'm pretty sure it's like that, although I've never heard it specifically mentioned. Has Venerable mentioned that ever? Sounds familiar. Because they do say, we're not, yeah, you know, we do. principal aspects of the path. Yeah, seem and to you do it. have to develop renunciation as the foundation for bodhicitta. So that's the, that's the first path, the path of accumulation. Then the second path is called the path of preparation. And that has four levels, which are called heat, peak, 
forbearance and supreme mundane quality. Mm -hmm. But you know, you might encounter different ways that those terms are translated. And um, the beginning of this path is the same for both Hinayana and Mahayana. It's the union of calm abiding and special insight observing selflessness. So that means you have to develop calm, calm abiding and you have to develop uh, the wisdom, conceptual or inferential wisdom, realizing selflessness, subtle selflessness. I think it has to be this, uh, the emptiness of the self-supporting, self-supporting substantial existence self. So you develop those two and then you put them together. Like um, Yoshi Yoshitake's teachings right now is talking about that. How to unite calm abiding and special insight regarding selflessness. So when you've achieved that union, um, then that's the starting point of the path of preparation. And as you proceed through the four levels, uh, your uh, wisdom of emptiness, which is still conceptual at this point, it's not yet a direct realization, um, it's getting more and more powerful and um, yeah, like the mind getting closer to the object emptiness. Uh, and then eventually the next path, path of seeing, third path, the path of seeing, is the point at which your mind is able to directly perceive emptiness or selflessness in this case. Um, you have a direct non-conceptual realization of selflessness. No longer conceptual, but it's a direct perception. And at, th at this point, you become an Arya, an Arya being who's had that direct realization of, of selflessness. And also, this is the point at which you first start to abandon um, some of the obscurations. Which ones? The acquired. The acquired, yeah. So the acquired, uh, intellectually acquired level of um, afflicted obscurations are abandoned. And then you just have the innate ones, which are abandoned gradually over the path of meditation. So the fourth path is the path of meditation, so-called because you continue meditating on this direct realization of, of selflessness. And... Um, and gradually that gets more powerful so that it can eliminate more and more layers or levels of the uh, innate uh, afflictions, afflictive obscuration. So they get gradually eliminated over the path of meditation. And then the fifth path is you've made it. This is where the path of no more learning. So that's the point where you attain your goal which in the for you know it's called it they do use the term enlightenment or awakening both for the hinayana and the mahayana but there is a difference hinayana enlightenment mahayana enlightenment so actually there are three types of enlightenments for the um, three types of practitioners the three vehicles which we'll go on to in the next um, slide and and also the first four paths are called learning paths or learner paths as opposed to the path of no more learning 
So the fifth path, you've, you've, you've learned everything you have to learn. You don't have to do any more work. You've, you've, you're, you've finished your work. But on the first four paths, you're still learning. You're still growing. You're still uh, working your way to the goal of enlightenment. that clear? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then um, what next slide this? Okay, so method and wisdom in the three vehicles. So I kind of summarized um, what is said in the text rather than going word for word. So the three vehicles um, are the hearer or shravaka vehicle. That's the first one. The second is the solitary realizer or Pratyeka Buddha vehicle. And the third is the Bodhisattva vehicle. So the first two are usually called Hinayana or fundamental vehicle. And their goal is um, attaining nirvana, you know, liberation for yourself, getting yourself out of samsara. Um, but not becoming a Buddha to help all other beings um, become free of samsara. So that's the goal for the third uh, type of person, the bodhisattva. So there are these three types of persons who follow these three different paths. And so method and wisdom, for all three, the wisdom is the same in the sense they all meditate on the subtle selflessness of persons, the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So that's common for all of them. They all have to meditate on that. They all have to realize that. And then method has to do with um, how accumulation of, of merit. I haven't really come across an explanation of how hearers and solitary realizers accumulate merit. But my guess is by um, keeping ethics, ethical conduct, that would be the main practice, you know, uh, refraining from non-virtue, living according to karma, virtue, and so on. I don't think they would engage in practices like generosity. I mean, they might, but that's more the bodhisattvas. Hmm? They have the ten perfections. Yeah, that's right. They do have those ten perfections. But I was thinking if the person is a monk, the person is, you know, a monk, then um, they're not supposed to own things, not supposed to have possessions. So they could give dharma. Mm -hmm. There's the giving of dharma, Mm -hmm. giving of spiritual advice if somebody's, you know, troubled and crying and go to the monk and the monk will speak to them and give them comfort and advice and so on. So yeah, there are there are types of giving that would be practiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so patience or fortitude. I think these are outlined in Buddhism one teacher of many traditions actually. Mm-hmm. What the merit how they how they, how they accumulate how they accumulate merit. Yeah. I'll look it up. I haven't um, read that book. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure it. that's where it is. I'll look it up though. Yeah. But anyway, they all, they, 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 all three of these types of persons do have to accumulate merit. And, but the difference is how long they spend. <laughs> so for hearers, it says hearers accumulate a small amount of merit, small collection, relatively, for, and, and they practice for at least three lifetimes. 
and they attain small enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> Their enlightenment is, I don't know, small. <laughs> I'll try to find more information about that. But anyway, solitary realizers, um, they accumulate a middling collection of merit and they practice for at least 100 eons. So just the fact that they spend so much more time accumulating merit and meditating on wisdom than their end result uh, would be stronger, would be greater. So it's called a middling enlightenment. And the reason for the name solitary realizer is because um, they like to stay alone. They say, I don't know, in one text they say, hearers like to stay together with other practitioners. They like to be in a community um, with, with other Sangha um, practitioners. Whereas solitary realizers like to be alone. They're more, um, yeah, solitary. <laughs> Although in the beginning, of course, they have to, you know, listen to Buddha's teachings. So they have to stay around the Buddha and around the Sangha to get the teachings. But then once they know the teachings, they like to stay alone in the forest. And, um, and also they make a kind of vow or commitment that in their final life, the life in which they reach their goal of, of enlightenment, they want to be in a, in a time and a place where there's no Buddha, no Buddha in the world. And they want to teach uh, without words. That's something else that is <coughs> teaching without words, silent teaching. Interesting. So those are some of the things I remember about solitary realizers. Mm. Is, is that, do you know anything that's said about how the quality of the Nirvana attained between hearers and solitary realizers differs? I'll look it up. I mean, in the Abhisamalam Kar, there's, ex there's information about this. That's um, a huge difference between three lifetimes and a hundred eons. Right? <laughs> yeah. I just don't understand what. Yeah, what and that they're both they both attain nirvana. They're out of samsara, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll have to refresh my memory of that. I can't remember offhand. Then the third type of person, a bodhisattva. So they accumulate a great collection of merit, practice for at least three countless great eons, and then attain great enlightenment. So the great enlightenment is the enlightenment of the Buddha, um, all-knowingness according to this school. So the main difference then would be in the amount of time they spend on the path, accumulating merit and meditating on selflessness. But they do all realize uh, selflessness, subtle selflessness of persons, and they do all uh, free themselves from samsara. Okay, so then um, next. Okay, so again, I just sort of consolidated what it said in the text about Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, so again, so yeah, so bodhisattva, so this is interesting. Um, the, according to this school, bodhisattvas collect merit for three countless great eons. 
up to the great stage of the path of accumulation. So again, the, the path of accumulation is the first of the five paths and it has three stages, small, middle, and great. And so they spend three countless great eons just to get up to, not, not on, but up to the, the third level of the path of accumulation. And then they attain the rest the remaining four paths on one seat. So uh, from Geshe Chamba Techchok's commentary, um, you know, using the example of Guru Shakyamuni Buddha, so um, when he was born as Prince Siddhartha, he was already a bodhisattva, but he was a bodhisattva on the path of accumulation. Mm -hmm. Just the first of the five paths. And so he wasn't an Arya, he was ordinary. The, the term ordinary means non-Arya. So he was an ordinary bodhisattva, not an Arya bodhisattva. And then, um, so Geshe Dhamma Tekshak said, so, so he went through all these, you know, left home, went in the forest, did the ascetic practices, and then finally sat under the Bodhi tree in Bokaya. And so in the evening, he sat under the Bodhi tree. So at that point in time, he was still on the uh, middling, the middle level of the path of accumulation. <laughs> and when he subdued the four Maras, remember the story about the Maras that got subdued? So when he did that, he attained the great level of the path of accumulation. Then went into meditation. He said, at midnight, <laughs> at midnight, he entered into meditation on the path of preparation and then passed through the paths of seeing and meditation and attained the path of no more learning at dawn. So that means in just one night, he went from the path of accumulation, the great level of the path of accumulation, all the way to the path of no more learning, Buddhahood, in just one single night. Now, this is not the Mahayana explanation. This is according to this school. Um, and, yeah, so the Mahayana schools would not agree with this. And solitaire realizers have a similar procedure because they, they spend 100 eons collecting merit up to... Uh, the great level of the path of accumulation, and then they sit down in one seat, one sitting, meditate, and complete their path up to their goal of um, middling enlightenment. But the hearers, it's not on here, but in the text, it says the hearers have a different procedure. So they collect merit on all four learning paths. So the first four paths, they're accumulating merit. And um, at least three lifetimes, but for some it could be up to 14 lifetimes. Mm. But I think this, this measure of, yeah, I think it's not so clear in, the, in this text, but the, when it's three lifetimes or 14 lifetimes, that's from the path of seeing. Mm -hmm. 
on the path of seeing on its three or up to 14 lifetimes. So that's a much faster path. Mm -hmm. And some people wonder, <laughs> I think it even comes up in the Abhisamayalam Kara, well, why don't we just follow the hearer's path and we can get to their enlightenment, nirvana, in three lifetimes or even four, 14 lifetimes and then we can switch to the Mahayana path. <laughs> Wouldn't that be faster? <laughs> so the answer to that query or that doubt is what happens when you get into, when you attain nirvana, they say, you know, the attainment of nirvana is so peaceful and so blissful that the arhats just get stuck there. And and um, they they don't want to come out. <laughs> they don't want to come out of the meditation, so they can remain in that very very peaceful state for a long 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 time. And from the Mahayana point of view, the Buddha will kind of wake them up out of their blissful nirvana and tell them they still have work to do. And then they have to go back and start at the Mahayana path of accumulation developing uncontrived bodhicitta. So they say that route takes longer because of this problem of getting stuck in nirvana. So they, they say it's faster, it's much better to start from a, to start on the Mahayana path right from the beginning. Even if it takes three countless great eons, it's still faster. <laughs> still faster than the other route, going to nirvana first and then Okay, so the second bullet point says, a Buddha's form aggregate is not a Buddha, but an object to be abandoned, a true suffering. Why is that? Any idea? Well, they have another, they have a, maybe it's the school, they have an assertion that when you attain nirvana, there is an, there is an extinguishment of all the aggregates. Well, that comes later. Okay. Because <laughs> you're attaining nirvana in, in the aggregate, so you took on the... Sorry? When, he, when the Buddha attained enlightenment, he still had his polluted aggregates. Right. So, when a, according to this school, um, the Buddha, like Shakyamuni Buddha, he was, he was an ordinary bodhisattva at the beginning of that life when he was born as Prince Siddhartha. He was just an ordinary bodhisattva. So his aggregates, his, his five aggregates, were polluted, or polluted, contaminated. Mm -hmm. They were thrown by karma and afflictions. They were the result of karma and afflictions. Because he hadn't yet reached the path of seeing. He wasn't yet an Aryan. So they were polluted. And they remain polluted, even after he becomes a Buddha. But he still has contaminated, well, his body, not the mind, but the body. It's mainly the body aggregate. His mind is all cleaned up. His mind is free of all afflictions and all contamination. But the body he has is still this polluted body thrown by karma and afflictions. Is that the version of uh, nirvana with remainder? Well, that's coming later. <laughs> You're jumping. You're jumping the gun. <laughs> so how do they reconcile then putting the Buddha's ashes in the stupa if it's a polluted aggregate? Why venerate that? Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> you have to ask them. 
I mean, they, I'm sure they still have great veneration for the Buddha because of what he did, what he attained. So even if his um, aggregates are still polluted, but I, I don't know, you, you have to ask them. But in the Mahayana, the, the explanation in the Mahayana is um, the, when, a, when a bodhisattva becomes an Arya bodhisattva, so before that, they're an ordinary bodhisattva. So their aggregates are still ordinary and contaminated. But when they attain the path of seeing, they attain the direct realization of emptiness, their body changes. Um, their body transforms into an unpolluted mental body that is free from physical suffering. So this isn't even in Buddhahood. This is just Arya Bodhisattva, path of seeing. Already their body has transformed and become unpolluted and free of uh, sick, uh, suffering like sickness, aging, and death, and so on. But according to this school, it, they don't say it's possible for the body to transform. So even when a person becomes a Buddha, their mind has become totally pure, totally enlightened, but their body is still the old polluted body. And so the text says, although a Buddha superior, a Arya Buddha, has abandoned all suffering and its origins without exception, it does not contradict that he still has true suffering in his continuum. This is because he has abandoned every single affliction that observes true suffering and therefore is considered to have abandoned true suffering. So they say that Buddha still has true suffering, even though he's abandoned true suffering. And the way they explain this is, when they say abandoned true suffering, it means that he's abandoned all the afflictions. Uh, so all suffering and causes of suffering in his mind, but still has this um, polluted body, which is a type of true suffering. So they don't see that as a contradiction. Which is why Buddha could be in pain. Yeah, I think they would say Buddha, yeah. Buddha could still experience pain. Like, stepped on a thorn. There's some story about stepping on a thorn and feeling pain. Yeah. Okay, then fourth, the third point is there's no enjoyment body, Sambhogakaya. So... This is only explained in Mahayana. So the enjoyment body is a kind of form body emanated by a Buddha, and it stays in Akanishta, pure abode, teaching Arya Bodhisattvas until samsara ends. So in this, in the, the Bhashika school, they don't talk about that. They don't know about it. Mm -hmm. Then the fourth bullet point is when the supreme, so they, yeah, supreme emanation body. So supreme emanation body refers to the Buddha, um, Shakyu, like Shakyamuni Buddha. We would say that that is a nirmanakaya, supreme emanation body. And when that comes to the end of its life and attains what's called nirvana without remainder, the mental continuum ceases. So their belief is when the Buddha passed away, in Kushinagar at the age of 80 or so, then 
his mind went out of existence. His mind ceased to exist. His body was left behind and it was uh, cremated and in the ashes, the relics were divided up and so on and so forth. But mind is no longer existing. So of course Mahayana wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> so this is, these are some of their assertions um, that are different, quite different than uh, Mahayana explanation of things. Okay, so then next slide is what they say about arhats. Um, so they say there's two types of arhat. So again, an arhat, uh, the, it translates as foe destroyer, foes referring to the afflictions, ignorance, greed, hatred. So someone who's destroyed those is a foe destroyer, an arhat. So this is somebody who's attained nirvana. Um, and there are two types, with remainder and without remainder. So with remainder means they still have aggregates. So they still have their five aggregates. So somebody can attain arhat, become an arhat, and until they die, they're still walking around in this world, going on alms around, meditating, teaching, and so on. So that's an arhat with remainder. And then when they come to the end of their life and die, um, then they become, <laughs> it's kind of it's funny to say, become without remaining. I mean, there's nothing left. <laughs> so <laughs> their mind goes out of existence. So there's no more aggregates. Well, I guess the body's left behind and the body can be cremated and made into ashes, into um, relics. But yeah, there's no, the, the Arhat's mind is no longer there. So that's the meaning of an Arhat without remainder. But there's really, you can't really say that's an Arhat. It's not a person. <laughs> yeah, Chandrakirti has fun with this in his text, Madhimika Avatar. We'll get to that eventually, <laughs> refuting this idea. Okay, so then the third, uh, second bullet point, the non-afflicted obscurations have, so remember, they, they abandon the afflicted obscurations, but they still have the non-afflicted obscurations in their mind, but they become non-existent, obviously, because they don't have a mind anymore, <laughs> so then those obscurations are gone too. So in the text it says these these don't be these are not abandoned by applying antidotes. It's not that they apply antidotes and get rid of them, but they just go out of existence because the mind is no longer there. So in the end they do abandon those too, but just as a side effect of nirvana without remainder. And then so then it says therefore there are three final final vehicles. So this is a big point of debate among the different Buddhist schools. Like our school, Madhyamaka school, says um, there's only one final vehicle, meaning every, every road leads to enlightenment. <laughs> every road leads to Buddhahood. So even those who become arhats, hearers and solitary realizers, they become arhats, but eventually they will enter the Mahayana path and then become Buddhists. So there's only one final vehicle. But according to this school, 
than some of the other schools, they say there are three final vehicles, meaning hearers and solitary realizers attain their goals, and that's it. They stop there. They don't enter the Mahayana. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't agree with that, but the school does. And then the last point, this isn't in our text, but it's in the Abhi Samailankara, that some arhats can regress. So this is the only school, the Babashka is the only school who say this. <laughs> they say there are six types of arhats, and five of them can regress, meaning fall down after becoming art. But the other schools would say, well, they weren't arhats. If you become an arhat, you don't regress. So those beings who regress were not really arhats. It's a final goal. Okay, so that's it for the text. There was one bit about definitive and interpretable sutras right at the end of this part about Babashika, um, but I'm going to skip over that because I, I really, I, as far as I know, it's only the Mahayana schools who discuss that topic. I don't think the other schools talk about definitive and interpretable sutras. Um, but it does say in our text that um, most Vibhashikas um, do not accept the Mahayana Sutras to be the word of the Buddha because they can't be taken literally. So they, they say that a definitive sutra is one that can be taken literally and they can't take the Mahayana Sutras literally. They probably find all kinds of things in the Mahayana Sutras that they don't agree with. Um, quite different from their own sutras, so they don't accept them as the word of the Buddha. Hmm? <laughs> and I think a lot of modern scholars have this view as well. I haven't studied Buddhism on that level, but just from what I've heard, you know, Western scholars who get PhDs and Buddha studies and teach Buddhism and I mean not Jeffrey I'm sure Jeffrey and his students wouldn't agree with that but other other scholars other professors I think that yeah have you heard come across that idea that they, they think that Mahayana sutras arose later and they were not taught by the Buddha and they were taught by somebody else I even read an article, and I don't know if it was tricycler um, lands were, and it was written by a, a monk, a teacher in the Chinese or Korean Buddhist tradition, and he said the same thing. I was quite shocked. Because <laughs> I guess in our tradition, the Tibetans are so convinced that the Mahayana Sutras are the word of the Buddha, and uh, yeah. They're saying that they, they, there's no way that they can be explicit because of just the outrageousness of some of the sutras? I guess, I don't know what the reasons are. Yeah, I, 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 when I was thinking. in Singapore, I met one. Um, he was a French man who became a monk in Thailand and Burma. He'd spent 25 years living in Thailand and Burma in the, in the Theravada tradition. Yeah, and he told me that when he reads the Mahayana Sutras, it's just like, he just can't. Fathom. So strange. I don't remember the exact words mm -hmm. that he used, but yeah, it was. 
and they are different. I mean, if you compare, you know, the Pali Sutras, the style, mm -hmm. the language, and so on, and then the Mahayana Sutras is so different. Yeah. So I can kind of understand, understand that. Well, the origin story is a little hard to swallow, too. Origin stories? Yeah. About the Buddha being on Vulture's Peak? No, about Nagarjuna going to the land of the Nagas. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and living 700 years or 800 years. I mean, you know. Tibetans, they don't seem to have trouble with these stories. They have no trouble with but and Vulture's Peak. Have you, have you, who's been to Vulture's Peak? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Tiny. how many people were supposed to be there? They <laughs> <laughs> were in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> they, have, they have the superpowers in the Pali tradition as well. So that shouldn't hmm? They have the superpowers in the Pali tradition. But well. I think this is one thing Western yeah. people, not just Western yeah. scholars, but a lot of Western practitioners just have so much trouble with these supernatural you know, floating in the sky, and even other realms and rebirth, things that can't be proven scientifically, they have a really hard time with. So the Mahayana Sutras are full of those things. Yeah. And they do exist in the Pali Sutras as well. Mm -hmm. um, Devas coming down and talking to the Buddha. Buddha, yeah. Arjan Mun had teaching the Devas. And... So I think a lot of Western people think, well, we can't really take that literally. <laughs> um... I don't know if we should. So the next thing is, so Trantika, we can start, unless anybody has a question about Vibhashika before we move on. Yeah. Uh, so the definition of the conventional truth in this school is that when you break it down, we break an object mentally down into parts, the mind apprehending the object ceases. But then, they want to give that object a level of substantiality as well. And I can't um, make those two kind of meld together in terms of if you stop perceiving the object because you're breaking it down into parts, but there's still some essence there, then what's the essence that they're trying to point to? I mean, the only thing I found about that was what Geshe Jamba Techchuk said is that that there's some function, like a vase or a table, microphone, an iPhone, they, they, they have a function. And yes, when you take it all apart, you can't really find that function anymore, but there's still a function there. So don't ask me. I haven't um, heard or read any more about that. Um, but yeah, it just seems to me that they're afraid to go too far <laughs> and fall into nihilism. Mm -hmm. That seems to be maybe the problem. Yeah. And there's got to be something there because they do say things are truly existing, inherently existing. So, you know, yeah, you can break it down and find these tiny particles. But still, I guess those particles can come together and form a larger object and it can perform functions. So, yeah, I don't really know. Oh, you have to find a Vipashika. Uh, Geshe Yampa Tech talks that each phenomenon has its own identity. Which can be dis each phenomenon has its own identity, which can be discovered mm -hmm. when it is looked for, mm -hmm. which is its function. Geshe Yampa Tech said that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is, yeah, but then 
there's a plate and it says the function of the plate, but then you break it down into its parts and you smash it up. It's like, where is that function? Or where the, is it like, the substantiality? Well, then it's no longer a plate. It's <laughs> but yeah, if you mentally take the plate apart, you know, mm -hmm. not smash it, but mentally take it apart, and you can see that it's made up of all these particles mm -hmm. and it stops being a plate for your mind. Um, and then if you smash it on the floor, it stops being a plate altogether because you can't put food on it anymore. So I don't know. I don't know how they would explain that. So, yeah. I was just kind of wondering how solid is that substantiality that they're trying to, if it's just, I can say that this is a computer because it functions as a computer and that's it. Is that the level of true existence that they're trying to assert? Because that doesn't, that just seems to be... I mean, I was just in preparing for the next um, school, the Satrantikas. Um, we can go to that slide. Um, so this next school, the Satrantika, the Sutra school, um, the name, the term Sutra school is kind of a reflection of how they... Um, because the Vibhashika mainly rely on this text called the Mahavibhasha, which is an Abhidharma text, and they believe it's the word of the Buddha. So this other group, these people, <laughs> don't agree with that, because there are things in that text that they disagree with, and they say, no way Buddha would have taught that. And so they reject that text, and they rely instead on the sutras. So that's why they're called the sutra schools, because they are relying on the Buddha's words and the sutras and not on this text that the Vibhashika is like. And in Jeffrey's book, Meditation on Emptiness, one of the examples of something they disagree with is the substantiality of space. Because according to Vibhashika, ultimate truths include all permanent phenomena not just little particles and moments of mind, but all permanent phenomena are also ultimate truths. So that includes space. They would say space is an ultimate truth and it's substantially existent. And so the other Buddhist schools say, what? How can you say space is substantially existent? So that's one of the things that they d disagree with, um, with the Vibhashika. But apparently it's in that text, the Mahavibhasha. So that's why they're you know, distancing themselves from that text and what it says and relying instead on the sutras. And also these definitions of the two truths, is it true, is it Guy who said, you know, it's it's basically the final school, who pulled out the definitions of them, right? No, like, no. Know, or are they explicitly stated? No, like in, in Nabhidharma Kosha, that's, that's, Vasubandhu's text, which explains the Vibhashika assertions. I see. So he's the one who wrote that text. He was a Vibhashika until he switched. So that so that has that definite those definitions of ultimate truth and dimensional truth. So okay. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time. So yeah. next week. We'll start on the next school. So Trantikas. So Trantikas. Yeah, this is actually quite an important school because so many, um, like Lorik, you know, mind and mental factors and all the logic, the debate texts you've been studying, they're all according to this school. Um, 
you know, one of the main um, sources of their information about this school is Dharmakirti's text, the seven treatises on valid cognition. So he was brilliant about explaining all these different aspects, different kinds of minds and, and reasoning and so on and so forth. So we're probably more familiar with Sotrantika tenets than Vaibhashika. Okay, so we'll stop there. Dedicate. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore.